Hello, and welcome to episode 63 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, April 15th, 2021. Ooh, should be tax day, but isn't. Yay. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? It's it's good. Things are really good I'm here in this pocket of the world. I mean, elsewhere, they're kind of upside down, but... We're doing good here. San Francisco has gone to 16 plus for vaccinations. And boy, one and I have our appointments. So I am pretty darn excited. Pretty excited. Our second vaccination is on Mother's Day. So I'm less excited about that, but I will take it. Yeah. I mean, at this point, you just got to do what you can do, right? That is entirely true. So yeah, I took the appointment. Very exciting. Indeed. All right. Also exciting is this podcast, if I may say that. We'll have On the Needles, On the Easel, On the Table, and so much On the Nightstand. My children and my husband took spring break, so I got a lot of reading done. Not much else, but a lot of reading done. So hold on to your hats for that section. I'm so excited to hear about this gigantic book stack. It is gigantic. But we will start with On the Needles, All My Knitting. I got some more work done on my Bautista. I think I was still in between projects when when last we spoke. And I was thinking about, I had finished Sock Madness socks. I was thinking about what sweater I wanted to knit next. And I did not have time to wind yarn before we left on our little weekend getaway, which was lovely. So Bautista became my car knitting. And actually on our way We went to Monterey for the weekend and on our way there, we passed the turnoff for San Juan Batista. (sighs) And this past weekend should have been the weekend that our knockers retreat was happening this year, but obviously did not. So I gave a little wave to the turnoff and kept knitting on my shawl using my theme colored yarn from the, from last year's retreat, which also didn't happen, but we got the yarn. I'm making progress on that. I'm not quite at the halfway point yet, but I am, I'm getting there. There was a lot of traffic on our way to Monterey. So I got a good bit of knitting done, which was pretty exciting. And then I did hand wind a ball of yarn for my cardigan, which was a nightmare, but I got it done. Took a while. So the, the sweater I've decided to knit is Golden Poppy by Noriko Ho. And it is an open front cardigan. Black Squirrel in Berkeley had kits for it last August. There are various iterations of the kit, but I chose kind of the full package and you got a copy of it's like a, a maker's magazine and this was volume 13 and the focus was on Northern California. So it was all kind of Northern California themed sewing patterns and crafting and knitting patterns, obviously. So golden poppy, poppy is, that's the state flower. So it's got a main color and then color work, poppy design. And I think it's actually just mosaic knitting. So that's where you are knitting with one color and slipping the other color stitches. So it's a little bit easier than stranded color work or more traditional where you're knitting with both colors on a row, but it ends up looking equally cool. So I'm excited for that. And then the sleeves, you do a fade with the two colors. And I think you use the second color on the the button band, although there are no buttons. So I did get started on that one as well. And it was going pretty well until last night. Oh, the yarn is from Black Squirrel, her Wesley Merino sock. And my main color is June Gloom, which is a white with little blue specks. 
for our coastal fog. And then the, the contrast color is a blue. And I think last time I said it had white specks. It's actually kind of green. And it's called Sea Forager. I think those are going to look I, really nice together. I love those two names so much. Aren't they beautiful? I think <laughs> yeah. that was, yeah, that was part of it. And I think uh, I, I mean, saw a little sneak peek of the of the wool on Instagram. That yes, I had yeah, part of my so knitting pretty. in the June gloom and then the skein of the Sea Forager as well, because I love them both. And they are blacklight reactive. So I think I said that last time as well. When, when next I go to a rave or Disneyland, I will be set with my outfit. <laughs> it's probably more a Disneyland appropriate outfit than a, than a rave, but whatever. Not that I'm going to either of them. Although apparently Disneyland is reopening just for California residents and you might have have to be vaccinated. So I could go soon. Everything's going to open up here eventually. I just yep. hope that people have learned their lesson about like washing hands and <laughs> I don't know. So anyway, so I started the sweater and I was zipping along doing great. It's one of those ones you start on, you knit kind of the back and then put those stitches on hold and then pick up on, on one front and start that pick up the other front and then connect it all together. There's a part in the pattern where it says, make sure you read all the instructions after this, because there are things that are happening at the same time, which is fine. A lot of sweaters are like that because you're doing the sleeve shaping, you're doing the front shaping. There's some other things that are happening as well. I thought I had read far enough and realized last night that nope, I didn't. As I was knitting, I was thinking, huh, this is weird. How is this going to connect? And when I got to the end, I realized, oh, it doesn't. I had started knitting the front and it said you do your increases for like 22 times and then there's all for the the neckline shaping and then there's sleeve shaping that you do and then at some point you connect them and you're supposed to after you finish the sleeve shaping stop connect everything in the round start knitting again and then you continue with the rest of the neckline shaping so I had these two really long front panels and the back was not that long so I had to so I once I connected it, it wasn't going to match up. So I had to rip back both of my front panels, which was a little sad, but it had gone oh pretty gosh. fast. I mean, I've only been working on this for, I guess it's almost two weeks now. No, because I knit socks in between. So like a week wor week's worth of knitting and not even, I have not been working on it very intensely and it's stuck in it. So it's just, it was a little frustrating because I thought I was doing so well and I had read the instructions really well and I was wrong. I, yeah. I would be so crushed. <laughs> If I had spent a week. But it wasn't really a week. It wasn't a okay. week's worth of knitting that I had ripped out. It was maybe two evenings worth of knitting. Okay. That feels. So like just a couple doable. of hours. Yeah. Yeah. And once I get going on it, I'm going to be knitting even more. So I'll be moving along more quickly. And it's all stockinette right now. So it, it feels like it's going really fast, even though it's in fingering weight yarn, which is the mm. same stuff I use to knit socks. But the stockinette feels amazingly easy and fast after the latest Sock Madness sock, which... <laughs> I'm so excited. Tell me everything. If you will remember, you suggested that I might want to do the editing for the previous podcast a little bit ahead of time in case the new pattern dropped. And I said, oh, no way, because it ends like Wednesday morning. There's no way they're going to start a new sock that same day. I'll be fine. Well, yes way. They totally did. So I think the round closed on like 10.30 a.m. They put up the specs around 11.30. 
the new pattern dropped at noon. It was so fast. Those poor people that were knitting up to the last minute must be exhausted because this new pattern is crazy pants. And this is only round two. I am kind of terrified about what else is going to happen in the future rounds, but we shall see. So this one is called All the Bees by Knit Joys. I forget if this is her first. It can't possibly be her first sock. It might be her first sock madness sock. Whew. There are so many things. All the bees. That is what it is. There is beads. There are baubles. There is also brioche. It it is bonkers. <laughs> That's what it is. There are twisted stitches. There are cables. There are there are so many lace panels. It was oh, it's, so it's really interesting, is what you're saying. Oh, so <laughs> interesting. There's a beaded cast on, which what? gorgeous knitting. And I this it is it was magic, I tell you. So much fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was cool. So the yarn I picked was Enchanted Knoll Farm Superwash Sock in Gen Maka. It's kind of a either Yoda or matcha green. Very bright. It, it can photograph as super neon green. I don't think it's quite that green in real life, but it's really hard to photograph. And it has been in my stash since August 2012. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. It was funny. It's really not a me color. But I had pulled it out because it was a solid and thrown it in my bag of things that I was going to potentially use for Sock Madness. And then this one, the specs dropped and it was going to be with beads. Oh, and not one color of beads, two color of beads. And I think you needed 256 of the main color of beads. Huh. So kind of looking through my combinations, what I had available, this one, this combination just, I don't know, it spoke to me. So I went with it. So I had the bright green yarn. I had dark green beads for my main one. I pulled out a couple of options for this, the second color bead and ended up going with a really pale pink. I might've gone with a darker one that might've popped more, but I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, so I started knitting these Wednesday night after I'd finished editing and I finished Sunday morning. I was pretty impressed with myself, I gotta say. Monica, you're like a professional. <laughs> I did. I mean, I was knitting pretty much all day. Yeah. But it's like, a, um, what do you call that part of the Olympics where they do like six different things? They run and then they cross country ski oh, and then they like lay the down. I mean, there's a couple of the skiing there's and like the shooting is a biathlon. Practice. Yeah. That's biathlon. <laughs> that's only two things. That one is oh, hepta heptathlon. Yeah. And I think there's a decathlon too. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost me. Yeah, no, it was, it was crazy, 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 crazy. And I think it's definitely going to take the full two weeks again, because it's, it's an intense amount of sock. There is a lot of stitches in that thing. A lot of stuff going on. It's beautiful. I, if it wasn't a sock madness sock, it might be a bit over-designed. Everyone's like, why is there brioche? I mean, it's cool. <laughs> it definitely makes it a sock madness sock. There does not need to be a brioche panel, but it worked out. Um, it actually fits. It's maybe a smidge big. It is super wash sock. So hopefully if I wash it and dry it, it'll firm up a little and fit really nicely. Oh, the beaded cast on. It reminds me of the cast on for that, the blue sweater with the waves that had kind of that rolled cuff. And I've done a cup that for a couple other sweaters. It makes such a beautiful cast on and I don't understand it. You do a provisional cast on and then you knit into those stitches and then you do some slipping and knitting and purling and slipping and then you do some more knitting and then you take off the provisional stitches and you have this beautiful amazing cuff so this was basically that but with beads 
So the bees what is, start up. What is that cast on called? The cast on, I think, is what it is. Cool. It is fantastic. So what is on the easel? Well, much to tell you. When last we spoke, I was splashing around with acrylics, trying to see if I wanted to work in acrylics some more. And I, I gotta say, I just, I don't love them. The texture when I'm playing with the paints is just sticky, I guess. And I'm sure there are mediums that I could use, but I just didn't want to invest any more time with it. I was feeling like I wasn't making any art that I loved. None of the abstract things were panning out. So I have switched, I switched gears a little bit. I had reclaimed a bunch of wood panels that I had taken in an abstract class a couple years ago that didn't quite resonate. And I have several, like 30 wood panels with bad art on them. And I sanded them all down and gessoed over them completely, have basically 30 new blank slates. And I brought them into the studio and I have been painting with oils. Um, This feels so right right now. And I know I have been the gouache lady for years, basically. But something was calling to me to switch up the medium a little bit because I had reached a place with gouache where it wasn't as expressive anymore. And I really want to grow that side of myself. So I am not giving up gouache. I use gouache all the time, especially for certain types of projects. So I've been painting with oils and initially it felt a little like I, I want to use the metaphor, like, you know, a song by heart or a professional musician knows a song by heart and they go into a different opera hall or, or concert venue and you're singing with a different orchestra and the acoustics are different, even though, you know, the song, it still feels really different. So that's kind of how this, not that I'm a professional opera singer. I don't know why I use that (laughs) metaphor, but it works. It, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it's just some of the constructs behind it are shifted slightly, which makes my brain process it in a different way. And I am all about growing as an artist and a person. And this is, a this is just all my synapses are firing differently right now. I can feel it. So the first few days I had sketched out some rough seascapes. Seascapes are really comfortable for me to paint. And we live here in the Bay Area, which is, you know, anywhere we go out of the ocean is a potential for a great view. So I'm using photos that I've taken up and down the coast, and I'm just painting from those. They're comfortable references visually, but then using this new, I I don't really paint on panel and it's interesting to paint on panel. And it's very interesting to be painting with oils. I've also had to change my studio plan a lot to accommodate for this because I mostly have painted in gouache, which is oil-based and having, you know, water and brushes and that kind of thing for the gouache and then switching to, or sorry, the water gouache is water-based and then switching to oil-based 
And do I use solvents or like, what am I doing to clean? And it's, it's a little bit different in terms of studio management. I struggled a little bit because it smells different And oil paints have that oily smell. And that part doesn't bother me at all, but the solvents do, even though I was using Gamsol and safer turpentine alternatives, it still wasn't, I was comfortable. Um, I had to leave the window open and it was freezing cold in here. And I just couldn't find a good flow. I could only paint for a few hours. And then I went over to Arch, which is an art store in the bottom of Potrero Hill. Hmm. And didn't know that. Yeah, it's this beautiful, it's kind of tiny, great shop. It's called Arch Art and Design. And I was talking to the smart people over there and they recommended a solvent-free fluid that helps thin down paints and no fumes. And California has very strict VOC regulations anyway, but I guess they're being increased. And so a lot of the solvents that are available to us now won't be in the short term. And I don't know that. So please, if you're an oil painter, don't freak out. I don't really know the timeline of any of that, but I love that I can start off in a solvent-free place because the past couple of days I've been in here painting for giant chunks of time and I feel great. And whether the window's open or not, I love the smell of oil paint. So if that bothers people, that might be troubling, I guess. But for me, I just, I'm thrilled with how the shift has gone in terms of the studio process. And then now that I'm solvent free, I guess, it's allowing for longer, more intense painting sessions. And therefore I am accomplishing more. And I feel like the growth will come faster. I love the idea of the the stiff the smell of the paint changing the whole artistic experience. I think that's really cool. And I would never have thought about that. Thank but you. It makes sense. It's unmistakable to me, you know, the linseed oil. I know that it bothers certain people because I'm getting lots of chatty messages about it on Instagram. But rest assured, people, I am doing it as safely as possible. I do not use heavy metal pigments like cadmium. And I have a cobalt hue, which is a man-made alternative, which is not inferior. I'm kind of just doing all the things that I need to do. I don't think it's any more toxic than painting with gouache, frankly. I'm not aerosolizing anything. I have an air purifier in my studio and it tells me that everything is a-okay. So on words. Very cool. Yeah, it's, I'm in a great place. And while I wish I could say, oh yeah, I can do abstracts now. I'm still painting garbagey abstracts and that's okay. I think what the abstracts did was sort of like an uncomfortable bridge to this different medium. Because going from gouache to oil is a little bit like, well, going from medium A to medium B is a lot like relinquishing control. Therefore, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. And I think 
perhaps the abstracts were a vehicle of uncomfortableness for me. And it's allowing me to embrace the, the lack of control that I have with oils and to be okay with it. Oils are a little bit messier than gouache. I'm a pretty neat painter and I never really thought about wearing an apron or I use a barrier cream on my hands when I'm painting with oils to keep the pigments from getting into my skin. It was never really a problem with gouache. I don't like gloves, the feel of gloves, so I use the barrier cream. But one thing that I'm a little bit nervous about is getting it on my clothes. Gouache washes out of everything because it's water soluble, but oil does not, and it's kind of a pain. So I am making an apron. I'm gonna do a denim split front apron like potters and, and ceramicists use because of how my chair is situated. It has, I have a like a saddle chair and this will cover my, my upper thigh basically. And that way, um, and it has like, I'm gonna have pockets in the bib and pockets on the thigh so that I can kind of tuck things because I noticed that I can't just throw down a paintbrush and grab something without getting paint. I don't know, oil paint's sticky and messier and in a delicious way. So it's like your preschool clothes. Exactly. Exactly. And you had special clothes for preschool for one for your teaching days. Cause who knows what was going to get on them. Bleach likely. Oh yeah. Any number and, of things. <laughs> yeah, truly. I'm excited to make this apron and I'm doing a custom. I'm, I could certainly buy one, but I want to have just the right pocket on the bib and I'm going to do bust darts for the front of it because I hate how, I don't know, my cooking aprons kind of like come right down the center of my bust line. <laughs> so I'm picky and I'm going to make it myself. And I have some great thick denim that is a little too thick for anything else. And I think it'll be perfect for an apron. Yeah. Why wouldn't you make your own if you can? That's right. Nice to have it fit. Yeah, I'm excited. So that's what's happening in the studio. On uh, Literally all of my easels are full of mid-stage, still wet oil <laughs> panels, which is so fun. It's so it fun. It is so fun. I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Nice. All right, on the table. Yeah, so between spring break and, and well, mostly spring break because we went away, so I wasn't cooking. Although I did make my strawberry rhubarb cobbler because springtime. Yeah, and then I kind of took the week and just didn't really do anything. So it was super easy meals that, you know, family favorites, things we've done a million times kind of, kind of thing. And then I've been working from Simply Julia, getting ready for our review. Well, we haven't decided when we're doing that, but I've been diving into that. So I have to wait to talk about those. But I did make Smitten Kitchen's lemon potatoes, which remind me a lot. I think it was hers, the melting potatoes, melted potatoes. So very similar, but with a lot of lemon and they were delicious. So it's you chop up the potatoes and put them on a sheet pan. And I think you start off roasting them for just half an hour. Then you add garlic, cloves, and then broth and lemon, a lot of lemon, and then roast it for another half hour. Maybe the broth is the last thing you add. There's three parts, there's three roasting times. 
And at the end of it, they're all kind of infused with this lemon flavor and crispy and soft at the same time. And they were pretty delicious. So that was, that was, that was a win. And, you know, just a little different from the melting one, the melted ones. I like I love those. The mel- those melting potatoes were a huge hit around here. That's yeah. a good reminder for those. Yeah. And it's all hands-off time, right? There's, I mean, once you've cut them and put them in there, you're just, they sit there and do their thing and you can go do other things as long as you remember that they are in there and that you do need to come back to them at some point. And then I kind of had fun. I, I needed ricotta for one recipe for the white pizza kale from Simply Julia, which you will hear about eventually, which was delicious, but you need ricotta for it. And I've been doing my shopping online and I still get caught by sizes Like how big of a ricotta do I need? I don't know. This sounds good. And it came and it was like the extra big thing. So, and I think I only needed half a cup for the kale recipe. So I've been trying to use that up and not let the whole thing go to waste. So I've been trying to find other ricotta recipes that aren't just lasagna, right? It's not really lasagna season anymore. Although lasagna is always delicious. And I'm pretty sure no one in my house would be upset if I made lasagna. But I went with fish cakes, also from Simply Julia, she's the ricotta for her binder for, you know, part of it. And then I found an espresso chocolate chip cake recipe in my snacking cakes book. And that uses ricotta, which is kind of wonky, but made it super, super moist. And that was delicious. We had that last night and I still have some left. It will probably go to another cake. I haven't fully decided. I think there was a lot of berry cakes that use the ricotta. And I have a whole bunch of strawberries that are just this side of going bad. So I need to, to use those up. So that might be a good way to do it. I think that I have a strawberry ricotta scone recipe where you could use a gluten-free. Yeah. Oh, it's, um, it's a smitten kitchen. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. (laughs) Whole it's whole wheat raspberry ricotta scone. And they are one of my favorite scones to make. Oh, they're raspberry. Same, same. Yeah. They're one of my favorite scones ever. Oh, okay. So good. I will check that out. It's in the first book. I had the first book. Yeah. I have them both. Yeah. And then I haven't, and I realized I haven't been keeping up with my grains of the month very well, but I do have a couple of new grains that I am looking forward to. Those are amaranth which feels it's kind of polenti, most of the recipes. It is apparently not actually a cereal grain, but gets treated a lot like oatmeal and quinoa and that kind of thing. And it's apparently also mentioned in Aesop's Fables and Paradise Lost as well. So it's been around for a while. So I'm kind of I'm interested to see how that goes. Um, mostly the recipes I'm seeing are breakfast cereal, you know, like porridge with amaranth, that kind of thing. So finding interesting uses for it might be a little tricky, but... We will see what I can do. And then the other one is Fonio. I think that's how you, well, that's what it looks like to me. It's a West African grain with a nutty aroma and pebble-like texture, like a cross between couscous and quinoa. And I think there was just an article in the Chronicle about this recently. And that's why I saw, I saw there was an article somewhere. You can get it at Whole Foods. It's becoming a new, new thing. Although the article I found about it was from 2017 or when I was looking back. So I've got a couple of packets of that coming. So I'm interested in checking that out as well. So lots of future things on my table, not so much right now. How about you? Kind of the same boat. We're, we're cooking a lot from the Simply Julia getting ready for our big review of that delightfully. 
but I do have a couple of funny stories for you. We have teenagers, as many of you know, and they are getting ready. Mine are getting ready to hop into hopefully wrestling season, which means that they're not going to, they're going to like turn down dessert every night and just do it like once a week is their plan. We'll see. Cause they want to be strong young men. But before, before wrestling season starts, they asked for this layered cookie brownie thing, which was kind of a deep cake pan with cookie dough, a layer of Oreos, and then brownie mixture on top and Oreo crumbs on top of that. Wow. That's something. Yeah. It's, you know, serious. It's a serious sugar bomb, basically. So I made my standard cookie dough. I did the Oreo layer. I completely cheated and bought a box of Ghirardelli brownie mix because I have oils to play with. And I put it in the oven. The box, there was actually a recipe for this on the Ghirardelli brownie box. And it said to bake it for 40 minutes or whatever, this, this cookie brownie thing. I checked it at 40 minutes and it was quite underbaked. So I let it go a little bit longer, but it's, you know, this is that fine line. Like when do you pull brownies from the oven? I just wasn't sure. It was so thick. I mean, it was probably two plus inches thick when it was all said and done and risen. And the outer edges of it were definitely overbaked. And the center was even slightly dry, if you asked me. Although I don't need to ever make this thing again. It was just, it was a little too much for me. We don't know what to call it. Did they make this up or had they seen it somewhere? Where oh, did this come from? One of them had seen it on TikTok. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So I'm just playing along because I'm cool like that sometimes. You are. Not so fun. We've been reading about foods to help prevent dementia and making sure that we are doing our absolute best to take care of ourselves. And when I was reading through the list of foods that purportedly help combat (laughs) dementia, the only thing that we really, I mean, everybody could eat more green vegetables in their life and we all do the best we can. But one of the things that was listed that were very irregular about our beans, and you're so good about beans, so I'm loving, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but we need to eat more beans, basically. And so we're setting off on, I, I ordered a couple of bean-specific cookbooks, and I'm looking through the ones that I have. I I don't know that I'm going to go whole hog and become like a Rancho Gordo bean person because I can get them over at my Molly Stones. So that's easy. But I did make the pizza beans from Smitten Kitchen. Are we just total converts to Smitten Kitchen or what? Like, oh, we've always been. It's not a convert situation. (laughs) So good. So I made the pizza beans with, and this is probably against the bean law, but can I used a can of cannellini beans because that's what I had. You're allowed to do that. Yeah, I am. And they're I not did. as good, but there's so much stuff on there anyway. 
Oh, they were great. And I found this can of, uh, I'm kicking myself because I've already recycled it, but it was like a bigger white bean and it had burgundy. It wasn't a cranberry bean. It was like a soldier bean or something like that. Interesting. Big giant heirloom bean. And it was canned, which made it quick. The kids loved it. Their wrestling coach loved it because I sent some home with him. There were no leftovers. So the pizza beans are back in the rotation, but I am looking for other bean suggestions. So if you've got a good bean cookbook, send it my way. And then I, I've been making stuff from Simply Julia, but I'm not going to talk about it at all because I'm so excited with everything that I've made so far. I think I'm four, four or five recipes in. East yeah. has a bunch of bean, has a bean section. Oh, great. Great. Or legumes, but I think there's a bunch of beans in there. I'll paw through that this afternoon. I am loving the San Francisco Sunday Chronicle food section, or at least the recipe on the back. Mm -hmm. I did the green pea risotto from, I think it was last week. Oh, I missed that one. It was delicious. There, there, there's a lot of similarities to, I wish we were talking about simply Julia today because there's a recipe. I know I wasn't supposed to talk. I just said I wasn't going to talk about it. It's okay. I mentioned it too. Can't help it. There's a recipe in there that's very similar process to the green pea risotto. Hers is a, a spaghetti. This one. Oh, is I saw that spaghetti. I want to make with that. Arborio. It's delicious. Yeah. So you take the green peas, blanch them, and then turn them into a pesto, basically. Oh. I, with the green pea risotto, I did add a giant handful of power greens that we had in the fridge just to use it up. Yeah. Um, and it just, it just made it more voluminous and the whole thing greener. Awesome recipe. I love this method. Everybody really loved it. And I think I just served it with some leftover pulled chicken from a, or a roasted chicken. Mm, that sounds um, delicious. Really great risotto. Very easy. I hope people aren't intimidated by risottos anymore. I mean, it's, it means a little bit of stirring, but what I like about it is in between the stirring, I clean up the whole kitchen. And so by the time the risotto is done, all, everything else is done too. And then there's just a, the dinner dishes and the risotto pot. Yeah. And so, I've had um, decent luck with risottos in my instant pot, which is even. Ooh, really? Yeah. You have to get the timing right, but, but it's worked pretty well. And that's just totally hands off. So the only other kitchen item that I would introduced to my kitchen is a really beautiful copper risotto pot. You know, they're, they're meant to be a, a really deep cooktop pan and it doesn't even have to be copper. Oh, I don't know. Nice though. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, Italian, Italian mama, yeah. but I mean, great. I don't know if Tom Colicchio is going to approve of my instant pot risotto, but whatever, he's not come over to my house anytime soon. So yeah, I, I just use the pasta pot for mine, but I just, I think this was such a great recipe and it was worth dragging out the food processor to pulse the peas and greens and, and just make that puree. It was really, really delicious. And then the next night we had some leftover and I made risotto cakes. My problem with reheating risotto is that the texture is slightly different and it's never as wonderful. 
And so I make risotto cakes, which I basically just scoop the risotto, form a patty and cover it in like panko breadcrumbs and then pan fry it until it's hot through. I don't use egg or anything like that. And everybody ate those too. So there wasn't, there wasn't a spoonful left. It was a great recipe. And that's it from this kitchen. All right. On the nightstand. So as a quick reminder, we are now a bookshop.org affiliate. We're slowly adding books to our bookshop. You can click on the links in our show notes and that will take you to the book and you can buy it from there and it will come from a local bookstore and we will get some money and it will just be a wonderful experience for you. (laughs) So books. All right. I should talk about my books. So the first two are from authors that I've read before, but that aren't series, which is kind of feels very exotic. First was The Echo Wife by Sarah Gailey. And she wrote Magic for Liars, which was a murder mystery at a magical boarding school and Upright Women Wanted, which was the librarian spies in the futuristic Old West. So this one is kind of in that science fiction-y theme, but very, very minor. Evelyn Caldwell is a scientist and she has successfully figured out how to clone humans. She's very focused on her work. She's getting a big award. And what people also know is that her husband has recently left her. What they don't know is that he left her for a clone that he secretly made of her. It's totally illegal. I mean, it's her, but with all her ambition and kind of self-determination taken out. So super creepy. But then she gets a call from the clone. Clone sounds really upset. She says something has gone really wrong. Can Evelyn please come over? So things go on from there. It is, it's a pretty dark book. I had no idea where it was going, which I really enjoyed that part of it. She's such a good writer, really atmospheric. There's a lot of really dark things in Evelyn's background that people should be aware of that might be triggering for some people. Nothing super explicit, but definitely, as I said, atmospheric and dark and kind of that thriller intense Alfred Hitchcock, well, what's going to happen kind of thing, but really good. Lots of interesting things about what makes us human and what, what is love and, and all these good questions. So, uh, did I just go through that and say she, <laughs> Sarah Gailey, their pronouns are they and them. So I apologize if I just called them a she working on that. They're a really great writer. I've enjoyed the three books of theirs that I've read. And so I would recommend those if you like something a little, little dark. And then I read The Survivors by Jane Harper. She wrote The Dry. Oh, the Dry was her most recent. This was another excellent one. I don't know that I enjoyed it as much as The Dry, but really good mystery. It takes place in a beach town in Tasmania. A couple, they both grew up in the town. They've been living in Sydney, Australia. They've come back because they've got some family stuff to deal with. The next morning, a waitress from the town, and uh, she's not from the town, She's like a college student who's there for the summer is found dead on the beach and brings up all the town secrets. There was some stuff that happened during a big storm 10 years ago. Again, that atmosphere that she gets is a good solid mystery. Lots of good characters. Yeah. So that one I would recommend as well. That was the survivors by Jane Harper. And then a few other mysteries trick of the light by Louise Penny. 
audiobook number seven in the expect Inspector Gamash series. I am plowing my way through these. This one uh, is based in the art world. And it is funny because they have started mentioning how many murders are going on in this little town. Like they're, the people are making jokes about it, which is kind of funny. Right, no one ever mentions that in Miss Marple. They're like, every place she goes is someone gets murdered. And they have started noticing. It's like this beautiful town with really great food and murder. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. And then the other one I read ticks my translation box for the year. An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good by Helen Turston. And it was translated by Marlene DeLarge. I think it's Norwegian originally. And it's this collection of little short stories, maybe six of them. So it was a pretty quick read about Maud, who is this 90-something woman that keeps murdering people and never gets caught because everyone is like, oh, she's a little old lady. She can't be doing anything. It's hilarious in a very dark way, but really funny. The author writes police procedurals. She has two different series and they both feature female detectives. They both appear in one of the later stories. But she was asked to write like a, a contribution for a Christmas anthology. And she wanted to do something kind of different. And so she decided to go from the other side of the police and write from the murderer's point of view. And she she kills people like a wife beater. And, you know, so it's she's kind of, for the most part, people that aren't super, super nice. They're little quick stories. They're hilarious. And, every, and then you get to see how everyone is kind of dismissing her and so it was amusing. And then we have a couple of romances. She got to have a palate cleanser. So A Beastly Kind of Earl by Mia Vinci. This was the first in a series. I've already read the third. They're kind of, I mean, it's more of a quartet, although there is a timeline, but you can really read them in any order. Thea Knight is uh, like a middle-class merchant's daughter, and her sister has become engaged to a nobleman's son, and they want to elope. So Thea agrees to pretend to be her sister for a few days so they can make a successful getaway. Their plot is known and Rafe, who's a lord, agrees to go try and stop her. Rafe decides he's going to marry Thea because if he gets married, his mother's estate will give him a bunch of money, which he needs to carry out his scientific researches. And then since she will be marrying him under a false name, it won't be valid and he can dump her and it'll, he'll still have the money. And she knows that it will be invalid, but she needs some money for her own purposes. Of course, they fall in love and there's shenanigans all over. I was waiting to hear like how this was gonna, I had forgotten at the beginning when you said romance. So I was like, oh boy, this is going to be good. (laughs) And then When He Was Wicked by Julia Quinn, Bridgerton number six. Francesca, who is married, and then her husband dies after two years unexpectedly. So she's very sad. It's four years later, and she wants a family, so she's decided to marry again. Her husband's cousin comes back to town. They were best friends, or the the cousin and the husband were best friends, and Francesca was friends with them as well. Secretly, he's been in love with her since he met her right before the wedding. So it's kind of a, a friends to lovers story. Very sweet. It all works out. Many shenanigans. And then Beneath the Keep by Erica Johansson. This is a prequel to the Saga of the Tearling trilogy that I read years ago, or I guess I listened to it. I'm not sure if I talked about it. It's kind of a, uh, it's a weird fantasy 
series that was pretty good, sort of Game of Thrones light without quite as much back and forth. So this is a prequel and you get the world before the story starts, which was interesting. It was kind of fun to be back in that world. Parts of it didn't make sense to me in terms of what happens in the actual series, but it was okay. If you read the series and liked it, then it's probably worth a read. All right. And then real books. <laughs> Not that those aren't real books, but a little more intense. First was Mean by Mirian Gukna. And this was a doozy. This was the latest in the Alta book club books. And I was not expecting it. This is definitely a tough read. It is basically her memoir of sexual assault, but with a bit of dark humor. So it opens with the murder of a woman in her town. And it turns out, she later finds out that this was the same man that had assaulted her. And then he went on to do this. Um, so I mean, it's kind of a memoir of her life up through college and with the assault and kind of all the things she went through. She is part Mexican, um, so she experiences a lot of racism growing up. And, with you know, so she kind of goes through all of these different experiences in her life. So it was a really good read. It was hard. And a lot of times I kind of kept thinking, oh, do I want to be reading this? But it was also really worthwhile. This all happened in the 90s. So she's about our age. Um, she was in college in the 90s. So just the way things were handled were somewhat different. I don't know how much has changed. I'd like to think that it's improved a bit, but not as much as it should have. But so it's definitely a good part of, of the conversation. Not a fun read, but I think a good read for sure. And then for my high school parent book group, read Cast. The Origins of Our Discontents by Isabel Wilkerson, which was really good as well. I think it makes a really good companion to Stamped, which kind of gives you all the history of the racism in our country. And this is just a different way of looking at it, looking at the issues not so much as one of race, but of caste, which I really liked because it, it brings it into the present. You can't say, oh, I'm not racist or family didn't enslave people, so it's not really my problem. It is all of our problems because we still live in this caste-based society. And she does really interesting comparisons between the system in India and the Nazi system, which apparently they looked at America pretty seriously to see how we had done it. Some of the things we did were, were just a bit too much for them. So that's, that's something that we definitely don't get taught in, uh, in history class but definitely worth a read. And I am looking forward to that discussion next week. And then finally, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. This won the Booker Prize last year, two years ago. So good. Really, really enjoyed this. It is, each chapter is told about a different woman. The vast majority of them, actually, mostly Black, all British. It all kind of revolves around a night at the theater. The The first woman is a director. It's her production. It's her first production at the National Theater in London. And so you get her story. And then the next chapter is all about her daughter. And then it's her best friend. And then it goes through all, like, all these different women. And they all have little connections. And it kind of circles back. And it was just really interesting and all these different views of what it is to be a woman and, and what they, what, all the different things that these people had experienced. And it was interesting because I know I've recently talked about how I, I didn't like books that were super episodic 
and didn't have a a plot. And there's really not any plot in this either, but I was still completely enthralled. And I think it was because I liked the characters. I felt for them and there was that emotional connection. And and even though there wasn't necessarily a direct, wasn't like you had a cliffhanger at the end of it, there was still, she somehow made it so that it flowed really well. And you wanted to to see what was going to happen next, even though it wasn't a, a through storyline, right? So that was Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo and two thumbs up on that one for sure. Huge staff, Monica. I have no idea how this happened. I guess I just <laughs> I read a lot. It was super, there was all these books that were really good. And Mean is a pretty short book. The romances are, those are not very long. I spent a lot of time reading. It was, it was good. So many things That's that great. were just really engaging. So that was fun. Good. How about you? I have three books for you today. Excellent. Oh, wait, I forgot. I oh. wanted to say hi to Jennifer Lassonde, Boston Jen of the Downseller Studio podcast. I was walking my dog today and listening to her podcast, as I often do. And she is a designer, fiber artist, and has a great podcast as well. And she started reviewing books and she talked about The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue and said that she read it because we had recommended it. So thank you. And I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And you guys should go listen to her podcast if you like crafty goodness and book reviews and other things. Yeah, that's great. Shout out to other fellow podcasters. Yep. Okay. So tough stuff first. I read Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melkor. This is translated by Sophie Hughes. I don't know where I found this book, but part of me thinks that when you mentioned at the beginning of the year that you were aiming to read books in translation, that I might have looked around on the internets for a list about great books in translation. And I, I also remember... Re- watching somebody's YouTube channel that was talking about great women in translation. And I think that maybe that guy is to blame on my picking up this book now that I'm thinking. Oh, so you're not entirely because before we started podcasting, Courtney was totally blaming me for this book. (laughs) I was like, I've never heard of this book. This is not on me. Sometimes I wish that I paid more attention to where I got a recommendation or where I saw a book initially, because for one reason or another, either to steer clear of it or to go back to that person and hear more. This book though, Hurricane Season, is not for everyone. And I will explain why. I think that the overall structure of this book is incredible and mesmerizing. I also think that the language of this book, it's very coarse. Every narrator is pretty foul-mouthed, and some of it is not comfortable and very triggering. And so I think it's important to point that out to people because it made me cringe a lot, and I'm generally not put off by swearing, but this, I think because there's like really, there's a lot of sexual violence, and boy, nobody's shy about talking about any of it. That said, There's a wide variety of voices. It feels like a really dark fable, but you never get the payoff of learning what happened to somebody totally. I think you 
you sort of, it, it's not a happy ending. It's really violent. It takes place in a Mexican village and it is not shy about illustrating the horrors and despair and poverty of this village. It's called hurricane season and it feels like a hurricane. I mean, it's kind of terrifying and there's the momentum of it. I think the momentum is why I finished it, why I didn't put it down. I remember looking down at page 79, like I usually give it a hundred pages and then go, no go. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I can do this. And then I kind of skim read the rest of it because I wanted to find out what was going to happen with one particular character. And she wasn't even a main character in the end. It's, it's pretty tough to take the whole book. If you think you can handle that and you are interested in, in a really interesting and compelling uh, story structure, then I would say have at it. But if you are remotely sensitive, then perhaps not. Is that fair? I hate to that's give. That's totally fair. No. I, I just feel like that's my personal honest review. And I'm a sensitive kid and I'm surprised that I finished it. So. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that style is not for everyone. So no. It's fair. Yeah. It's, it's tough. I'm not sure which one to save for last because my other two are really different. When my friend Kelly was here, we were having a book conversation and I asked her what was her favorite book of all time that's just really stuck with her. And she said Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson. Oh, interesting. And this I don't is, think I've ever read that. I had never either. Wow. I I thought I had a copy on my bookshelf. I ended up finding it. We had to go over to that Urban Ore in Oakland, that thrift store in Oakland for so a part for one of my kids is building a go-kart. And so we were in there of and, they he had, is. and they had like tons of used books and they had a copy of Snow Falling on Cedar. So I grabbed it. This was published in 1995 and that was early college for me. And so I suspect that's why I missed it. You know, when you're in college, you're doing all the college stuff. So um, this is a story of three people in the 1950s in a, a remote island in Puget Sound called San Pedro Island. Two of the characters are of Japanese descent. And um, the other character is a white man who is the local journalist and he owns the local newspaper and he inherited it from his father. And he is covering the trial of Kabuo. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And Kabuo is one of the Japanese characters and he was he's being charged of murder of a local fisherman. The structure of the book takes place predominantly during his trial and at the time, they're eager to, this is post-World War II, um, it's post-Hiroshima Nagasaki. It's like late 1940s, early 1950s. And so people are still very skeptical of Japanese Americans, even though Kabuo served in the army during the war and he was totally a patriot and 
it feels incredibly relevant right now to be reading about this during this time of xenophobia against Asian Americans. It's really tragic that we're revisiting this. His wife, Hisao, was a childhood friend of the journalist, the newspaper man. And they had had kind of a romance when they were young. And it's a beautiful, and, and the way that the story is woven, like their um, shared history and, and recollections up against the trial that's happening. And plus the horrors that were inflicted on them as Japanese Americans and being sent to the internment camps. It's, you know, it's yet another ugly piece of American history. And I think this novel is a really important window into that time. I, it's also part mystery, like what happened to the fishermen and why Kabuo is charged with his murder it's, it's a really rich novel and there's great characterization. You really get to know these individuals and their stories and how it's all woven together. It is definitely worth a read if you haven't had the pleasure. That is Snow Falling on Cedars, a relic from 1995. But I did read another historic, actual historical fiction from 1948. I read I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. And Dodie Smith wrote 101 Dalmatians. Really? So this was out of print for a long time and then republished. I have no idea. This is another. Did I read this? Tell me the Um, plot. What's the plot? It's out. I've heard of it very recently and I can't think why. Really? Okay. I mean, not really recently, but I've heard of it for sure. This is kind of a romance and funny enough both snow falling on cedars and i capture the castle have been uh, have movie adaptations that apparently are really well done so now i have some movies for my cue as well so this is the story of cassandra who's 18 and her father and her stepmother whose name is topaz which i just think is a awesome name for a character and her sister Rose and her two brothers they live in this rundown relic of a castle somewhere in England and the castle the the father wrote one famous book called Jacob Wrestling or Wrestling Jacob or something and then he kind of lost his mind and attempted to like stab somebody with a cake knife and then went to jail for years. They are very light about this side of it, but his inability to write has been chalked up to this prison time. When he was released from prison, they rented this castle with a 40-year lease and promised to take care of the castle because apparently you can get a castle for a song in Europe if you promise to take care of it because The burden of taking care of a castle is so expensive. Anyhow, he doesn't have any resources and they have to, they're just very poor, but they live in a castle and they've sold all of their possessions in order to eat. And the owner of the castle passes away and it's the new owners are, is an American who comes over and he's young and eligible 
and shenanigans ensue, as Monica would say. And it is this sort of love hopscotch. I don't know. I don't know the terminology for these um, romance novels, but there's, you know, is the sister marrying for love or for money and her trousseau is so important to her. And in the end, it has kind of a wide open ending, sort of happy. I think it leaves it open for a little bit of interpretation, which would probably negate the actual romance (laughs) um, title, Assignation. Um, So I'm not quite sure, but I really enjoyed it. I love, so the, the novel is her journals. And so she just writes this chronology of what's going on with her life and her family and this, these romances and that are going on around her. And it is, it's kind of delightful. The whole thing was pretty delightful. Have you read it? it? I I have read it. I just looked (laughs) it up on Goodreads. Uh, Summer 2018. Okay. So a while. So I don't know if that's where you got it because that would be pre-podcast, right? Yeah. So I don't think so. Yeah. I said it was sweet and fun and unexpected. Okay. Excellent. I would agree with that. Yeah. Gave it four stars. (laughs) Well, I do too. I really enjoyed it. And I actually, I watched a trailer for the movie and I'm interested in watching the movie. Where, what is it on? Oh, geez. I don't know. I watched the trailer on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Um, But I, yeah, I think I got a tremendous amount of joy by the character named Topaz. (laughs) Something like that will just propel me right through some a novel. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. So yeah, I don't um, know how I found that one either, but it was it was a good read. I know. I really feel like I should pay better attention to where I get these books. <laughs> but um, at this point, it's also really tricky because I probably ordered that forever ago, you know, and then and then it finally came through my library queue. So that's, those are my books for this week. Yeah, it was a, it was a a good literary week, even though one of them wasn't quite for me. The other two were really outstanding. Sounds good. All right. Starting the countdown for summer bingo. Bingo. So if you guys have any suggestions, feel free to email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com or throw a message onto our Instagram feed. We like to change it up a little. Some of the usual suspects will be on there, but uh, yeah, so that'll start end of May and we'll run all summer. And then at some point we'll decide that we're going to review, actually officially review Simply Julia. Yeah, we'll get that date. Probably not next week, but the week after. Maybe. Sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we're certainly cooking our way through it quickly enough. Yeah. That that would probably be a good idea. Otherwise, we might explode from our desire to talk about it. Yeah, it's a great, great cookable book. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.